Welcome back to episode number 205 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is a podcast for building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about grounding and bonding of silos. And in particular, we're talking about silos storing wood chips. We're doing that. To do that, we have back on our special guest, Jeremy Slonwhite, Chief Technical Officer for Explosion Safety for Remby Inc. Jeremy, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Great to be back. It's uh, kind of doing a, a back-to-back here. And it, yeah, it feels good to get and reconnect with you and share some information and talk talk the talk on explosion safety and dive down the the, the wormhole of uh, the technical details on some of these really interesting kind of niche topics. Yeah, for sure. And this is a this is a pretty niche one. And I think even beforehand, I heard you say that you hadn't heard these words in one single sentence before. So that's interesting. And maybe we'll talk about why. <laughs> Indeed. So we're talking about static electricity, grounding and bonding of silos, and in particular wood chips. This, again, was a help desk question that came in through our Dust Safety Science help desk system there. Um, this was from an end user working in Canada. And the question was, for a silo storing wood chips, do we need to test grounding resistance on a specific frequency or just do a visual inspection of the condition of the installation? And our team had sort of looked through trying to find resistivity requirements and when you might need to do testing on electrostatic connection and um, and grounding and bonding applications and really just couldn't figure the information out. We thought we had saw it somewhere, but we couldn't come up with it. Then they, we sent this out to our help desk, you know, wider distribution and asked Jeremy with uh, Remby to just walk us through some of his experience with this topic and send that back to the person who made the request and got their, their questions answered through that information exchange. So we're going to do that on this topic, on this episode that we're going to talk through this. Again, if you're new to the podcast, thank you again for tuning in. In addition to covering incident investigations, updates on incidents, safety shares, help desk questions like these ones, very technical aspects, broad research on combustible dust, and really anything to do with combustible dust in any country in the world, including Canada. That's the sort of stuff we're covering here on the podcast uh, for the last four years and going to our fifth year recording now. Today's episode, we're going to talk about which NFPA standards might apply to this scenario. When would a silo in general need to be grounded and how would that occur and what kind of inspection requirements might be there? And then what other types of static electricity hazards might arise in these sort of scenarios and, and some ways to address them as well. Jeremy, we had a, a good introduction to you and your work at, as Chief Technical Officer Explosion Safety for MB Inc. last week on the podcast. So we won't go through that again this week, but I think just kind of jumping in, you 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 got the question. We send it to you. It was one sentence for silo storing wood chips. Do we need to test mm-hmm. grounding resistance on a specific frequency or do a visual inspection on the condition of the installation? What kind of NFPA standards might apply in this scenario? And what sort of things should we be looking at to even start to answer this question? So yeah, as Chris mentioned, when I when I saw this question come through, my eyebrows certainly kind of did one did a, a one eyebrow Dwayne Johnson raise like. Arr! The video is not on here, but I I can uh, I can picture it. Exactly, bonding and grounding of a silo with wood chips. It's not not often topics or, or considerations that are are, are, are together. Uh, with that being said, the, the reasoning rationale behind that is is we'll, we'll, well, I guess what we're going to get into. Um, so with that, I mean, the the standard hierarchy of NFPA uh, evaluation and uh, interpretation start with with wood chips would be 664 the standard for combustible dust to safety in, in wood processing facilities um unfortunately nfpa 
664 is very light relating to static. It just basically says static accumulations must be kind of managed or controlled in a way that uh, like air hoses is the big mention. It's known that they can create higher uh, higher static charge. But otherwise, it basically just says it's where equipment is subject to static charge. Uh, it should be controlled and, and considered, but nothing really concrete or black and white on, on what and where and how. So the next step in that is the standard for uh, the best practice on static electricity, that's NFPA 77. And that's a, almost a textbook in itself on, on the development of charge and coulombs and all the, the, the details, but there's a section on kind of dust and powders and static control. With that, there there is also a section on more specifically to silos and understanding where static charges can come into play when when dealing with silos. And I think there's a couple of things that come in there from my very very limited understanding of static electricity, and really mostly just through previous podcast episodes we've done with folks like Al Zadok back in episode 198 and one one sorry 148 and 149 analyzing electrostatic ignition likelihood after an explosion incident and just sort of, you know, really high level coverage would be, you know, the the equipment, even stepping away from silos, the equipment themselves, you can try to avoid static charge accumulation on the equipment, in this case on the silo. And then there's also the consideration of, okay, inside the silo and the material itself, can it generate a charge and probably a bunch of other considerations that I'm missing. <laughs> Those are the two that I think we're going to cover a bit today. Uh, let's let's start with the silo itself because that's what the person was asking about, and we can kind of get that squared away a bit, and then let's move to some of the other considerations like maybe the material itself and what could come up there. So, for the silo itself, you know, what considerations would govern if it was needs to be grounded or not, and if it is grounded, then you know what method and and what kind of maintenance or inspection requirements might come up. Static electricity control or the control of electrostatic discharge is one method of control of uh, one of the you know 13 or so viable or uh, credible ignition sources for combustible dust explosions and uh, deflagrations. Looking at that, we kind of want to break it down and understand what and how a static discharge can, or if it can, ignite a, a dust cloud. With that, kind of going up into the, the fundamental path or, or route a little bit climbing up that mountain we have to understand a bit about the material and and the ignitability of, of that dust cloud every material in its uh, particle size and uh, moisture content and specific properties and uh, and parameters will have a, a different ignitability that's usually tested and measured in millijoules how much energy is required to ignite that dust cloud in a in a concentration ignitable concentration in air and then with that, we look at the amount of energy that's created from a static discharge, which are not all created equal. There's there's different types of static discharges. So different discharges have different energy for different materials. So there's a lot of variables in, in this equation. But uh, so, so with that, I guess, starting at the, with wood and wood chips, wood chips being larger, coarse, having some fines. In a lot of cases, wood, uh, wood chips are, are coming into the process as, as green undried high moisture content chips with that the, the the dust may be quite hard to ignite so to speak even if it's still ignitable and it can still be ignited in, in a lab scenario they, they're using very high energy igniters to to initiate that explosion to say if we have an open flame will it ignite and this is where like the 
you know, up into the thousands of millijoules is, is used for uh, uh, dust lab test igniters. But if if we're if we have a material that's tested, then we have to evaluate is the ignition sources that may come from a static charge credible. So understanding the material aspect is 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 valuable in in knowing and evaluating the ignition hazards so with wood again it's it's typically in the higher range into the even you know some some documents some publications report into the thousands of millijoules required to ignite a wood dust cloud now depending on the fineness you get into fine finer like sand or dust maybe off of uh, mdf process depending on the the, the specific wood hardwood versus softwood versus different exotics and the process so if it's more of a wood flower then it's going to be easier to ignite and require less millijoules, less energy to ignite that dust cloud. So that's kind of the first step in saying, you know, how how important is static control in perspective of uh, as an as a, the ignition source? Makes sense so far. Yeah, it does. And I kind of started drawing this little diagram out. There's two two sides of the equation. There's the dust as a cloud. And then there's the ignition sources. And the reason I put dust as a cloud here is you can also have dust as a layer. You can have some other types of hazards that might come up, fire and flash fire hazards. In this case, we're really talking about explosion hazards and, and the dust being present as a cloud. Um, and then ignition sources, and you mentioned that there's uh, at least 13 you know, credible or likely ignition sources, static electricity being one of them. So if you think about that as a, a Venn diagram, you want to know the overlap. When can the ignition source credibly ignite that dust cloud? And it's it's interesting because each ignition source might be a little different too, right? We're thinking of a hot surface. That's a totally different ignition mechanism to a dust cloud than a spark that occurs in the middle of that dust cloud. The surface has to, I don't know, be hot, be hot enough to cause, I, I guess, conduction and convection from one particle to the next in that cloud enough that it can cause ignition. I'd have to maybe draw out a better picture of what that is in my head before <laughs> I explain it again, but we'll say it's that. Yeah. Um, and then the other one is a spark in the middle of the cloud that's, similar but it's a different mechanism and use and the reason i bring those up is they're two different measured variables minimum ignition temperature would be the measured variable for surface ignition from a hot surface and minimum ignition energy is generally the measured variable for static electricity so if you think the two bang diagrams they change depending on the dust that you're using and the the ignition sources so in this case we're talking about static ignition energy so you really want to look at the mie the minimum ignition energy of your dust and then can that static electrical source <laughs> release enough energy it's often hard to talk with static electrics that's even another wrong way to say it <laughs> because there's so many words um, we've got we've got electrical folk that are just cringing right yeah, now it's, it's bad news um but i think you get the point create enough energy to be above the mie for this ignition case jeremy made a really good point that it's probably worth evaluating whether or not there's a combustible dust in that silo so you know don't probably test the wood chips themselves if unless you're convinced that's all that's in there if there is some dust that's created through attrition of those wood chips then you could do screen tests on that dust and say do we even have an, a, a dust explosion hazard in this silo if it's a no then then you kind of move on from there and if it's a yes then you'd want to go okay well what's the mie of this dust and there's standard tests to do that heavily impacted by the size and the material and heavily impacted by the moisture content so like jeremy was saying wood chips give off the impression of very large chips wherever you're storing the material that comes off your sanding line to repurpose, you know, that's a, that's a different um, thing. And if it's really dry, then that might be more ignitable than, than other wood dust. 
So I don't know if I summarized or added to your discussion there, but that's at least the picture that I drew and a lot of bad ways to stay stacked electricity or energy. <laughs> that makes that makes sense. And and as far as the material, like when conveying wood chips, you imagine a, a belt conveyor dropping wood chips into the silo, and then you've got dust that's being liberated as it's falling and then dropping it impacting, creating that cone of, of uh, material filling. Uh, the fine dust is going to be liberated and, and moved and pushed out you know, towards either a bin vent or a, an outlet filter, but a lot of it's going to cling to the sides and the walls and inside of silos. It's usually there's usually a layer that's built up, and it's that kind of layer where we'd honestly be the best place to take a sample. And then when it's you know if that sample was uh, to be you know lab processed down to a low moisture content, because you want to be re- relative and respective of. The seasonal differences, if, uh, if to say during the winter in cold climate, you've got, you know, bone dry air and, and that's going to suck all the moisture out of out of the, the material in the air. That's the relative sample that's going to be worst case. It's going to have the lowest ignition energy, you know, the most sensitive. Yeah. And the reason that's important is you don't want to have a no-go. That's only a no-go half the year <laughs> and then have right. exposable dust for the other half of the year that you're not managing at all. Think yeah, thinking about the I mean the the incidents in the Canadian wood industry back in 2012 and the, the the sawmills that you know catastrophically exploded they were they were both in the dead winter and around February where it was cold and dry in the climate that uh, they were in. And there's been some notable bad Christmases as well. 77 comes to mind where there are a lot of grain elevator explosions back to back to back to back. Yeah. It's not that these are all initiated by electrostatic discharge, but just the nature of the dust becomes more, the drier it is, it becomes more ignition sensitive. I and mean, with that, I think about like using my torch to light my, my charcoal grill. The charcoals can have glowing ember and I can have the, 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 the flame and the torch will go out and I can be holding it right over, the, right over the ember, but it won't reignite and thinking, well, it's gas. It's, it should be super ignition sensitive, but then it comes down to the concentration. It's not it's not fulfilling that, that uh, achieving that right fuel to air mixture, which leads into the silo. Like depending on how it's being filled, determines how what kind of dust cloud it's creating. If it's being gradually, softly conveyed and filled, it's going to create some dust cloud, but maybe or maybe not enough to create a, a, a concentrated, ignitable concentration in the silo, as opposed to fine material that's being pneumatically conveyed, blown in, it's going to in, inherently create a, a full distributed homogeneous dust cloud. So the method of silo filling and the type of material can really make a difference in what kind of concentration exists within the silo. And if it's full versus empty, and the, the, the amount, volume, and that, again, that concentration of cloud. But in, in, invariably, when we're preparing explosion safety protection concepts for for silos we always have to be aware of worst case scenario to uh to cover the basis because those are the it's those times it's the upset conditions uh when we're not expecting it that things almost always happen it's not rarely during during normal processing it's during those you know maintenance operations or or power outages or or bypasses that things kind of go array and and wonky and, and leads to uh kind of a snowball of errors. Yeah, it makes sense. And we, we've touched on a couple of things here. We talked about pneumatic conveying. We talked about how the dust or any conveying, mechanical or pneumatical, to get the, the chips into the silo. We talked about sort of, you know, what it looks like in that atmosphere above the, the bulk material. I do want to go back and answer this question on the silo itself because I think we're going to go back into these details. But I know, I'm kind of getting everywhere. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's good. It's it's a good it's a good coverage. It's, come back and, and let me let me take a guess why maybe you haven't heard of the words 
um, grounding, bonding, silos, and inspection of this system for wood chips. Is it because for wood chips you aren't classically seeing such low minimum ignition energies that you're you're thinking about grounding and bonding the silo? Like what? Well, that was my first guess, but maybe I shouldn't have guessed. Maybe I'll let you just tell me why. <laughs> That's certainly one of the reasons that the with wood chips that yeah, exactly the the minimum ignition energy is usually into the thousands hmm. that you need a, a pretty high hot ignition source like open flame or higher energy from a, a different type of electrostatic discharge than just a normal like gradual silo filling which i'll explain a little bit in a sec but yeah so that combined with silos are typically metal structural construction shell vessels that are anchored secured to usually a ground base other equipment have other structural equipment that through design and construction often are inherently grounded. Not always the case though. I mean, I've seen a few very rare like wooden silos, not so much in the wood industry, but they can exist. Or if a silo happens to be um, on load cells or if it's a large bin that may be suspended uh, and isolated in some way that maybe, maybe it's not inherently grounded in which case, still probably a good idea to make sure all of the equipment that's conveying any kind of combustible material is grounded and bonded so that it's at at least the same potential. Now, I guess what does that mean is grounding is electrical potential being to the ground. Bonded means being at equal potential or connecting it to an adjacent connected piece of equipment so that the two potentials of those devices or those equipment are are equal and that's the real concern is that you don't want a differential in in charge capacity if one item or equipment increases in charge as soon as it gets an opportunity it's going to want to discharge to the adjacent and that's where your your spark jump because as the charge goes up it jumps makes sense and if you think of the two like the you've seen the, the spark machines where they have the two heads with the the big leads and you see the spark jumping across if you just took a metal jacob's ladder yeah if you took a metal whatever screw and stuck it in between them that you kind of i guess that's bonding the two of them <laughs> they they can't have electric mm-hmm. potential across them anymore exactly that was the free flow free flow or dissipation of charge from one to the other so you, you don't get a you don't get the accumulation of charge that can lead to an arc discharge okay so so how do we ground a silo? Yeah, well, so if we did have to ground it, so on, so calmly the silo is going to be naturally grounded because it's connected to the ground. <laughs> they're built if they're built on the ground and um, connected to the other equipment around it uh, as well. And so, I mean, we say that kind of tongue in cheek, but it is important if it's not bonded to the other equipment that's connected that there is a, a Jacob's ladder kind of effect built there. Then then that would be important yeah. to consider in your hazard analysis. But generally, it's going to be grounded and bonded in itself. Um, if we did have it on load cells or some case where you needed to, how would you go about actually achieving the, the grounding portion of that? A, a common reliable way would be like a grounding wire cable, braided cable, just like a, some sort of mechanically attached, robust conductor. Again, effectively a big cable or wire that's, I say big just because I think it, it needs to be structurally reliable. And that's sorry, in, in NFP 77, when we're talking about like bonding of, of ducts that are conveying handling combustible material, uh, there's a, a statement that says the the size of the wire is not so much based on its current carrying capacity, rather its structural integrity and reliability that it's not ripped off or snagged or doing maintenance, that it's it's uh, it's compromised. So it just needs to be there. We're talking electrostatic current. So it is just like into the microamps of, uh, of capacity, high voltage, very, very low amperage. 
So the, the conductor doesn't need to be huge. It just needs to be reliable. So something that's going to be visibly and securely attached uh, to either ground, a ground rod, something the ground like a lightning rod or a system ground, or to a, a, another you know, piece of the building steel that's part of you know building ground or equally uh, connected to the rest of the, the network system. Makes sense. And what would you do for maintenance of this thing? Just kind of, well, I'll let you, let you answer. Give it a tug. <laughs> <laughs> really? It's simple as that. Just making sure it's secure and all the, the connections are, are, are hard connection that, you know, you don't want painted connections. You want it, uh, you know, hard bare, bare metal on metal, something that's, that's going to withstand corrosion over time and, and it cannot be compromised by elements or in an area where it could be snagged or run over by a forklift or something like this. You just want it to be a, just just reliable in that in that way so kind of the whole brute force robustness makes the most sense in that way there's there's no there's no real explicit direction in, in nfp 77 by for example on on grounding a, a silo for example just because inherently they they are and any electrical equipment that's attached to it is naturally going to have its own ground as part of the circuitry most likely yeah okay well Case closed. Silos don't have any static electricity issues. <laughs> Only if, right? Um, no, I don't think that's that's quite it. Um, what I mean, so that's the silo itself. You did mention that you have, you know, a conveying system that's pulling the material in. You generally have a headspace above yeah. the material. You have a an interface between the material and the air. You know, in terms of what other kind of static electricity issues might come up, and let's kind of so we we cover that all these different static electricity things that we're going to mention here have different ignition energies associated with them that they can generate. And then you need to match it up with the MIE of your dust. Let's assume that we're using sort of a, a lesser MIE dust that maybe we might be thinking about static electricity. Then what other types of ignition hazards might come up in these different systems that are involved with the silo? Um, let's list a couple of them and then maybe let's go through and, and think about how we might determine if they're credible ignition sources. Sure, that sounds good. In silos, typically we have phenomenon where the type of discharge we're looking at is called either cone discharge or, or bulking brush discharge. And what happens there when we're filling a silo from a material feed, uh, usually coming in from the center, making a cone, hence the cone discharge. As the silo fills up, you have a conductive outer shell of the silo wall. That material then is rolling and sliding upon itself. Now, depending on the resistivity, if that, if that material has low resistivity, meaning it doesn't convey charge very well, it can accumulate by it rubbing on itself. It gathers and it collects charge. Now, if you imagine a very large diameter silo, as the material rubs on itself, it's building charge, building, building, building. And then by the time it reaches the outside ground, grounded, bonded, conductive walls, it can release, it can discharge. And that can create a kind of chain reaction. And there's reports where it can send like, you know, meter plus long kind of spark, lightning sparks up the side of the silo cone as it just kind of connects one to the one, one to the next to the next, and it conveys itself through charge. That's what happens is that material discharges itself or builds on itself and then discharges to the sidewalls. Now, with that, though, being said, the amount of energy that's generated in this type of discharge is uh, indicated or, or explained in NFPA to peak out at around 20 millijoules, which isn't a whole lot, but some materials are below that in, in some starches, sugars, carbohydrates, uh, certainly resins and things like that do have ignition sensitivities 
in that range and lower and in vapors and gases well even below one millijoule so this is where it, i mean it can be a concern in wood the only the scenario that really possibly comes to mind if i kind of stretch a little bit is uh like wood pellet silos these are huge like domes where got a, a, ma- a massive dome that's filled with wood pellets now if these wood pellets are are really dusty because they're they get some fine fine dust coming off these dried compacted wood pellets that these large chunks can have a high propensity to build charge on themselves because they're a large granular material rolling around a lot lots of surface kind of contact and but that dust can be ignition sensitive if it's building up in the space during an aggressive filling that might be able to uh to arc off uh, at the sides yeah and you mentioned the two the the diameter because i remember back to the interview with with al on this the diameter plays a, a critical role. i don't know if it's squared or tripled or, or what power and then the the resistivity of that bulk material yeah so if you have a really large diameter like you're saying it has the better chance to build up these cone discharges and i don't know where i've seen a a picture at one point of i'm seeing and maybe we saw the same picture i don't know where it is but you know these meter long electrostatic discharges on top of the on top of the cone or on top of the pile that's sort of what we're talking about this possibility of building up yeah indeed it, it's a uh, it's actually yeah, it has a little uh, figure uh, 15.6 in nfp 77 that, that explains okay. it describes it and it can have in a liquid s- scenario liquid filling on on uh, non-conductive liquids too but uh different different topic in podcast <laughs> um sure. the uh yeah, this is this is a that that filling silo filling phenomenon, but fortunately is limited to a, a very low MIE uh, production, low energy. So most a, a lot of materials are not uh, subject to that. It's just when the silo gets really large diameter, low sensitivity for ignition, uh, low resistivity, all of these kind of check boxes are, are in place. Then you really got to start looking at maybe the, maybe this is going to be a concern. I mean, outside of that, there's other methods of static charge accumulations that uh, that certainly produces a lot higher energy during like conveying, like belt conveying, uh, and especially pneumatic conveying, where higher velocity, a lot more friction, it develops what's called propagating brush discharge, and it can build up into the well into the hundreds or thousands of, of millijoules. That would be enough to ignite, say, a wood dust cloud in any case, which is why the material handling equipment is a lot more sensitive for uh, for static charge uh, accumulation and, and bonding and grounding is much more critical. And so for that equipment, then, would that be kind of coming back to the story about bonding and grounding, make sure the equipment's bonded and grounded so that it's not accumulating charge? Exactly. So a lot of people are familiar with like the Van de Graaff generator, that steel ball people they put their hand on, the hair stands up the static generator well inside of that is a belt it's like a little belt conveyor and it's spinning around and as it's spinning across these little roller drums the the static the electrons are being thrown off the belt off as it kind of makes its way around the tangent and and then attached onto that dome that's isolated and it builds charge so it's the belt conveyor that's generating the charge and then throwing it onto the, the the metal dome. So thinking of a belt conveyor in an industrial process, well, inherently it's doing the same thing. So it, it definitely has a potential of developing charge. So any static belting, um, sometimes uh, like comb brushes across belts where static charge is uh, uh, concerning, and then just grounding bonding of of the the components themselves. And a lot of people in facilities, if if they had a static issue, they'd probably know just by 
by maintenance, by interaction of getting zapped. That's certainly a, a an indicator that static's a concern. More usually more of a concern than the, the idea of combustible dust ignitability. It's a, that uncomfortable feeling of having that zap. In which case, there's there's more going on. A door a doorknobs like ten maybe around there, tens of millijoules maybe. Right. Like- yep. So you don't you don't want to get hit by a couple hundred. Yeah, if you start getting hit by a couple hundred, then then you're gonna have people complaining about other things. Well, yeah, even in my even my little roller mill that I use in my garage when I'm crushing grains for my my, my homebrew operation, I've gotten zaps off of the, the hopper that I place on a plastic container that I'm collecting in enough only happened once or twice enough to connect a little wire to my electrical uh, ground wire in my by my my garage that i just don't like the feeling of it i'm not i don't feel i'm at risk of a dust explosion i'm not making that much dust in my little couple pound milling operation but expanding that to a full-size industrial operation really really sends the picture the uh, the idea home how how it can happen and really be a big thing yeah and i would say your your home beer brew operation is is, is bigger than most people's home brew it's, <laughs> it's not a huge space but the, the quality the, the quality and the quantity are, are quite high so excellent work there <laughs> Thanks, thanks. Getting a little off topic, but yes. appreciate it. Um, okay, good. So what else? <laughs> so with that, I, one of the big questions, okay, so we do have, if we have a possibility to develop a, a bulking brush cone discharge uh, where the material can build up charge in and itself and arc out on the sidewalls for ignition sensitive, how, how, do we, how do we prevent this? How do we stop it? I've actually heard this question separately before a couple of times as well, so it would be good to to get some understanding on on how to do it as well. So the again, knowing the idea that as the material makes its way from the top of the cone down the sides and builds charge as it gets to the sidewalls, what we want to do is we want to interrupt it so it actually can't build enough charge to to arc and discharge out by the time it reaches the sides. So ways to do that would be metal rods vertically through the silo at, at intermediate spots or or rings, cones, some 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 sort of conductive material that bonded back to the sidewalls to create an early path to to arc out and that can be done by even chains that are hung from the top so it flows down over and it it dissipates up through or you know rods up from the bottom or even you know grids that are uh, stacked through the silo that allow the material to dissipate and dump that charge as it's rolling on itself before reaching the sidewalls and important note that only works if the silo is grounded <laughs> um, but yes exactly which it almost always is which we already addressed so that's good yeah it's it's interesting to hear those different types of solutions for this kind of cone discharge and yeah. again like you you've made a really good point on sampling so the sample here is that that material that builds up in that headspace on the wall and then probably looking at working with your test lab to identify the worst case scenario there so if you want to dry it out and that sort of thing just because you look at you look at the bulk like say it's plastic and you look at the pellets and you go well, how could this be a combustible mm-hmm. dust and even if you're even if you're processing it throughout your operation in different ways it may never it may never look to create a combustible dust but i've had the same discussion with people making help desk requests and dusty professional requests and sort of said you know well visualize you look inside your silo on the top is there dust on the the wall there and like oh yeah there, there would have to be and it's like well what's that <laughs> you know that's like that's probably your your combustible dust so or your yeah. worst case combustible dust and that's actually what you need to protect from in the silo and each piece of processing equipment's different considerations are all different you know that's why you need somebody qualified to do a dust hazard analysis and evaluate those scenarios 
but that's what comes into your sampling plan is is we're trying to figure out, is this even possible and then if it is possible if it's a credible ignition source then what protections do we need to have in place to to avoid these type of electrostatic buildups okay anything else on this topic of silos and wood products or even other products electrostatic buildup anything else to close off before today before we end today um, well, you, you mentioned about the, the we talked about the, the buildup on the walls that's just inherent from the, the release of, of dust from the material stream that's that's being filled. Depending on the material, the process, the, the filling, again, I think I mentioned earlier, but the, the filling method can have an impact on that. Like, you know, a lot of in grain industry, flowers, materials, uh, pneumatic uh, bulk powders are pneumatically conveyed into a silo. Usually it's like a center axial fill. It's from the center, but on the top. But if that is that the material stream of the pipe is uh, connected and blown in tangentially from the side, kind of like a cyclone, then it almost develops like a bit of a self-cleaning. So it will naturally kind of scour the walls and prevent like with that airflow, prevent the the same amount of build, the different amount of buildup than a, an axial feed or a drop-in filling. In addition, as opposed to just gravity dropping and it producing a huge dust cloud in the space, that cyclonic, uh, you know, tangential filling it creates a different type of dust cloud that's that's typically, as it's been kind of experimentally found, is constrained to the sidewalls. So, and in some standards and and kind of global documents and uh, scientific reports valuations have been determined as producing a, a lower concentration, therefore, you know, less. Uh, um, less energetic dust cloud concerning the, the explosion protection required. So in, interesting scenario how even just the handling and filling the, the way you're getting the material in and forming the dust clouds can can really have an impact. Other than that, one thing that we're talking about control and we did talk about humidity, if the process allows it, again, going back to the original question, the wood chips, if it's green wood chips and there's a chance to add humidification Humidification goes a very, very long way in controlling the natural static charge. Think of water being conductive. It allows the, the inherent conductivity of, of static charge in the material in the air. And you have less likelihood of building that charge when there's higher moisture content. The only downside or, or kind of double-edged sort of that is when you're adding moisture and water to, to wood chips, you get that risk of exothermic decomposition and self kind of self-heating and smoldering that if they're sitting for a while has to be has to be managed. But if it's a fairly con continuous use and there's an ability to add some some moisture, then that's uh that's or even at the conveying at the conveying level during like material transfers where dust clouds are generated. I've made that recommendation before to add like a fogging mist during those material drops just to, to suppress dust clouds, but by also adding some material, little bit of moisture to the product. Again, if it's pre-drying, for example, yeah. it, it can also add to reduce the uh, the, the static accumulate charge accumulation ability yeah it makes a lot of sense and if i kind of summarize through the the whole episode we talked through one you got to you got to understand if you have a potential combustible dust in that silo so that would most likely be your screening test with a, an appropriate sample collection routine and then if you do have a combustible dust then you can start looking at your ignition scenarios and you have need to evaluate whether or not electrostatic ignition sources can ignite that material and then if you determine that yes it can if it's a low mie material then you're kind of into okay well how do you develop the customized solution and that customized solution is it, it, this this is one of the hardest areas at least for someone 
Like uh, I, I do, I've done a lot of academic research in my career. I, I got a PhD out of it, I guess, but I still wouldn't feel that comfortable in this space. Like you almost need a PhD in electrostatics to, maybe that's a little bit too much, but you at least need to be pretty well-versed. It's not just slapping a wire on stuff. <laughs> There's a lot of different considerations that can happen to, that can cause yeah. this to, to come up. So then it's about working with somebody that, you know, maybe can remove the static electricity issue by, like you said, adding moisture in. In a certain way or if you do need to address static electricity okay well how do we do this in the the best way possible like you're adding a, a mesh to something versus adding a chain those probably have different outcomes for the processing operation themselves so yeah take somebody with a lot of knowledge and skill to be able to develop practical solution a lot of working parts for sure cool okay well i think we can call that another one in the books jeremy anything else on this topic before we close out or for the audience just non-combustible dust in general uh, the, the biggest uh, message takeaway for uh, electrostatics is understand the, uh, the ignition sensitivity of the dust in the worst case scenario and, uh, and evaluate all the possible uh, scenarios of, uh, of ignition source development that might be relevant. Awesome. I couldn't, couldn't have summarized it better myself. So I appreciate, as always, you helping with the help desk questions that come in through Dust Safety Science. We do try not to flood you with too many, but occasionally you get the real hard ones. Or the real obscure ones, <laughs> like words that don't generally go together, getting stuck together. <laughs> um, so we appreciate it, and we appreciate more of your time coming on the podcast to walk through today. Always a pleasure, Chris. All right. Thanks, Jeremy. We'll be talking soon. Thanks. Take care. So even listen to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and Jeremy Slonwhite, Chief Technical Officer of Explosion Safety for Remby Inc., and they're based out of North Carolina, and he himself is based out of Nova Scotia up here in Canada. We've been talking about grounding and bonding of silos in general, and specifically of silo storing wood chips or wood products, and a bunch of different considerations around this. So we discussed which kind of FPA standards would apply. Um, in this particular application, 664, the, the wood dust, uh, wood product standard would apply, as well as NFPA 77, the standard on static electricity. As Jeremy mentioned, this standard covers a broad scope of static electricity does have specific coverage on, you know, dust producing and dust handling applications as well. Those then will be applied to the, the application in question. So we talked through for the hazard identification stage here, you're really looking at, if you're looking at explosion, then you're looking at dust as a cloud and what viable ignition sources can ignite that dust as a cloud. Static electricity is one of many possibilities. And in the case of static electricity, the variables you're looking at are the energy that can be generated by that um, electrostatic discharge and the energy necessary to ignite that dust cloud. And that's typically the minimum ignition energy of that dust cloud as a sort of standard way to test it. And once you've identified that you have a combustible dust, that you have a credible ignition source through static electricity, given one of the mechanisms that can build that type of charge, then you need to start evaluating, okay, well, how do we reduce that? We talked quite a bit about silos in general on how they're typically grounded and bonded. They're metal shells connected to each other, so that's the bonded piece and grounded there. Well, stuck in the ground, I, I guess. <laughs> um, if it's not, if it's a different case, then you may need to manually ground that silo. And that can be done by using a grounding wire or some other approach. But the key that Jeremy mentioned here, like all sort of grounding methods, is you really want to make sure it's sturdy because it'll be there for a long time and it's pretty easy to break one off or pull it off or have it rust out or corrode. And if you don't have the metal to metal connection that's no longer grounded and your fail safe there has failed and eventually they're will be stack build up on that system and it could be a discharge and it could be a discharge big enough to ignite the dust cloud. 
So we talked about that topic a bit. Then we also sort of dove into more more topics with stack electricity and silo filling in general. So we talked about the conveying equipment. Uh, it could be mechanical conveying or pneumatic conveying, which have different profiles associated with stack electricity. How it's being distributed into the silo, if it's just in the middle and allowed to, to build up the cone. Then you're looking at things like what kind of dust is building up in that headspace above the bulk material. And what is the ability of that cone to generate a static discharge through I think it's a bulk and brush cone discharge, but I may have my, my words a bit mixed up there, but that's okay. Um, go back and listen to the podcast episode, and, and Jeremy said it really well in there, I'm sure. Uh, we talked about some of the considerations there, some of the, the challenges that involved, some of the solutions, and then also in the pneumatic conveying or uh, mechanic conveying system as well, what we might be looking at there. So really interesting topic, really interesting question. As always, if you have any questions about combustible dust, you can send them through to myself or our team at Dust Safety Science. You can email me, Chris, at DustSafetyScience.com. If you want to get a hold of Jeremy, we will have his contact details at DustSafetyScience.com slash 205 for this episode. Um, as always, I want to say thank you for everything you're doing in the industry handling combustible dust. Keep them safer with the work you're ever doing out there every day, and I appreciate you listening to the podcast.